Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 43, The Royal Conspiracy of Go-Go. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and joining the show today from Glendale, California, is Simon Wood. From Springdale, Arkansas, is William Ellis. Chris Scott's coming to us from Ramsgate, Kent, in the UK. John Bennett is in London, England. Gareth Williams is in Neath, Wales. From Penzers, Kent, in the UK, is Ben Home. And from Charlottesville, Virginia, is Ali Ryder. The Royal Conspiracy Suspect Theory is the most well-known of all solutions to the Whitechapel murders. Over the past half decade, it has been ingrained into the popular culture through best-selling books, big-budget movies, and mass-distributed documentaries. Prince Albert Victor, the Queen's physician William Gull, a coachman named Netley, and plus or minus Sir Robert Anderson and Walter Sickert have collectively been routinely named as the main suspects for the crimes of Jack the Ripper. On today's show, we'll trace the royal conspiracy theory back to its origins and proceed from there to discuss its evolution throughout the last six decades. Let's start off by going back to 1895 and Robert James Lees. His story first appeared in print on my side of the Atlantic in 1895 in the Chicago Sunday Times. It was reprinted a few weeks later in the London newspaper The People. Which one of you wishes to describe for us the contents of R.J. Lees' story? Well, I'll put it in a, I'll put it in a nutshell. Um, uh, Robert James Lees led the police to um, a fashionable London doctor. Uh, and the doctor was put in an asylum under the name of Thomas Mason. Note the Mason. Uh, and he had a number, 124. And apparently some form of funerals was held to um, sort of... Um, take care of his disappearance but Melvin Harris suggested this story was hoaxed by the Whitechapel Club of Chicago we don't know how much of this is true probably not very much of it but this is just this set the tone this set one of the ingredients for the eventual Stephen Knight royal conspiracy theory we have the, the society doctor Dr. Gull if you like so uh, the Robert James Lee's story, as you had said, Simon, um, first appeared in the Chicago Sunday Times, and it was reprinted in London uh, a few weeks later, and then it was reprinted and reprinted and reprinted for for the next sixty years. Yes, uh, in various uh, um, newspapers and magazines. And Robert Lee's, although it has, in a sense, nothing to do with Sir William Gull. The, the original story, and it was probably all made up to begin with, it gets dropped into all these other royal conspiracies down the line. Yes, indeed. Yeah, this uh, unknown doctor morphed into Sir William Gull over 60 years. Right. Now, there was a, a letter, a Jack the Ripper letter, that came about. We'll talk more in detail about Stephen Knight um, here in a little bit as we go as we get up to the 20th century. But there was a Jack the Ripper letter that Stephen Knight quotes in his book *The Final Solution* that refers to Lees. Who wants to tell us a little bit about that Jack the Ripper letter and, and, and um, how it was used in in the suspect theory, and then later on what 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 it was discovered to have actually said. Well, this is a letter that was uh, received in July of 1889, so after the um, canonical Ripper murders anyway. Um, 
which taunted the police in their, in, in, you know, in their failure to catch, uh, catch the murder. And it says something along the lines of, you know, you haven't caught me yet with all your blue bottles, with all your lees. Um, and uh, this, this was interpreted by, by Knight as, uh, you know, confirmation that uh, lees had been uh, heavily involved with the, um, the, the, the Royal Conspiracy and the Ripper case. Um, in fact, um, Lees did take, you know, some interest in the, in the murders, and in fact, he offered his services to the police uh, on at least one occasion that I can recall, um, uh, shortly after the double event. But uh, the, the police call him a lunatic, and uh, that that was the end of that, as far as I was concerned. Um, but it was some years later that uh, I think it was Stuart Evans uh, who uh, examined the so-called Lees letter and, and, and found out that the reference wasn't to. Lees at all, but to Tex, as in uh, T E C S, uh, short for detectives. So it's you know which fits in with the rest of the of the taunt, uh, which mentions blue bottles, which would have been the bobbies on the beat, the detectives from Scotland Yard. Uh, so so if you like this um, this circumstantial confirmation of of Lees, the alleged royal clairvoyance involvement in the police investigation was 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 based on nothing at all, really. I believe the body of the letter said, you have not caught me yet with all your cunning, with all your lees or texts, with all your blue bottles. Yes. Now, another uh, aspect early on um, in, in the uh, royal conspiracy theory that I thought I'd throw in here, which is uh, was discussed on the message boards about four years ago, but no one really brought it up since. And that, that's this book that came out in 1929 by Clarence Gordon Haddon called My Uncle George V in which he claims he is the illegitimate son of Prince Eddie and uh, Marguerite Haddon. This would have uh, affair between Prince Eddie and Ms. Haddon would have occurred in India in 1889. And this fellow, Clarence Haddon, suggests that the royal family and the Metropolitan Police covered up the affair and the illegitimate child that was uh, birthed by Ms. Haddon and Prince Eddie, and um, letters and documents between the two of them were destroyed. Um, Ms. Haddon came back to Britain, and th- would, but then was quickly deported back to India, and Clarence Haddon, the son, claims that he was arrested and jailed. Does anyone know uh, anything further about this little tale? Because it does show uh, some shades of what the, became of the royal conspiracy with an illegitimate child and metropolitan police and royal family cover-up. Well, there, there does seem to be sort of, like you say, shades of it, don't there? There's sort of, um, and is this perhaps one of the first times, or if not the first time, when uh, Prince Eddie is kind of considered the black sheep? Of the family that is sort of sort of carried on ever since, as if as if people have it in for Prince Eddie, but um, it's similar to that, isn't it? But then sort of it's almost as if the names are changed and the dates are slightly changed. One other thing that's, that's interesting about the the Haddon claim is is that it illustrates a more general point, and that is that I dare say history is is, is littered with people who have claimed um, you know honourable parentage or, or, or celebrity parentage uh, of one form or another. Um, and the, the, the really interesting thing about this uh, claim by, by uh, Clarence Haddon is that um, if it is indeed the, the, the root of the, uh, the Ripper Royal Conspiracy, then, then of course we come full circle when we reach uh, Mr. Sickert a bit later. Uh, the whole of the, um, the Stephen Knight theory sort of hinges largely on, 
what uh, Joseph Gorman Sickert uh, claimed in respect of his parentage, uh, namely that he was the uh, the son of of, of, of uh, Walter Sickert, and that's you know part of that story as well is is that there was an illegitimate child born. To- Simon, were you going to say something? I'm just going to say I, I agree completely with Gareth there. Um, with, with Lee's, uh, we have in place the Doctor, who eventually became Gull. Um, with the Haddon story, we now have the the secret marriage and the illegitimate child. This is another ingredient of what eventually became Stephen Knight's story. So, you know, we're seeing it shaping up. Three years after the publication of this Clarence Haddon book comes Dr. Thomas Dutton, whose story comes to us via Donald McCormick. Thomas Dutton claimed that Jack the Ripper was a middle-aged doctor who had become embittered by the death of his brilliant son. There was a Daily Express article in 1935 that mentioned that Thomas Dutton, the uh, source of this story, who supposedly wrote a book called The Chronicle of Crime, was friends with the Duke of Clarence. Later newspaper articles uh, start to flesh out Thomas Dutton's suspect theory, and it's believed that Donald McCormick, who later wrote a book based on Dutton's story, naming as Jack the Ripper uh, Dr. Petachenko, also authored these early newspaper accounts about Thomas Dutton's suspect theory. I, I don't believe that, that McCormick is the source of the story that Thomas Dutton was close friends with Duke of Clarence. I'm not sure time-wise where Dr. Dutton fits into this, but there seems to be a confusion here. Where Again, we have another doctor, and this story gets a little bit confused with, of all people, Tumblety. Uh, and Tumblety was the person who got confused with Dr. Stanley. And Dr. Stanley, I believe, was the pivotal figure in Leonard Matter's book. So there seems to be a whole heap of confusion, possibly around the 1930s. And again, as we build this, uh, this, this rather... Uh rich and, dare I say, nutty cake. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Another little ingredient there is, of course, the, the, the whole Dr. Stanley uh, story about the, you know, the son dying of syphilis um, and, and, you know, how that then maps into the Prince Eddie uh, sort of story as well, um, which is nonsensical because, you know, when Eddie died uh, or Eddie would have contracted syphilis when he was about nine years old. And um, so th- this, again, uh, this, this sort of premature syphilis um, uh, theme runs through the royal conspiracy and, and possibly ties in with Leonard Matters and, uh, uh, and similar theories of, of you know, uh, just before the Second World War. Another thing that, that, that struck me about Thomas Dutton's story that has its echoes in later stories, in particular that of Thomas Stowell, is that this is a physician upset over the death of his syphilitic son, and so he seeks revenge uh, by killing prostitutes, kind of has slight shades in in Dr. Thomas Stowell's story that pops up of Sir William Gull not being a participant in the Jack the Ripper murders, but 
attempting to get Prince Eddie certified as a lunatic, as kind of like a father figure type. Would anyone uh, uh, care to comment on that or agree or disagree? I don't know. I don't know. I'd agree that I see him as a father figure. I think because in most of the interpretations I've seen, both uh, visual and and written, Gull um, in that uh, telling of it is is cast as a sort of establishment figure whose whose first priority is not protecting Eddie per se, but it's protecting the the monarchy and the establishment. So I think he's he's rather sort of a pillar of the establishment and one of the uh, leaders of any cover-up you believe in, rather than any sort of, like, quasi-paternal feelings towards Eddie. Well, the most recent uh, movie made about the royal conspiracy theory, the Johnny Depp movie from Hell, does sort of portray Gull as a paternal figure for Eddie insofar as keeping Eddie healthy made him like a father figure, and the prostitutes that gave him the syphilis was destroying his life's work. Mm. All right. Yeah. Then again, yeah. But then again, that's completely Hollywood anyway. So yeah, mm. yeah. It may be completely Hollywood, but it, it follows in a grand tradition, doesn't it? Oh, certainly. Of, of, of making this whole story, um, well, almost a Greek tragedy. <laughs> you got to add to it, otherwise it's, you're just retelling. Yeah, or, or indeed a Greek street tragedy for those familiar with Soho and uh, Cleveland Street. <laughs> Sorry, a little parochial joke there. <laughs> Talking of um, what Gareth just said about adding, you've got to keep adding to it or whatever, sort of just looking through the notes I've got here. Um, with the Lee story, you have a, a mention of a physician under the name of Thomas Mason, 124, blah, blah, blah. Mm. Then it goes on to Clarence Gordon Haddon, who suddenly mentions Prince Eddie in it. So suddenly you have a physician, but there's no name or an official name. Then you have Prince Eddie, and then it goes on. It's almost as if. Um, what Simon was saying earlier on, they're setting up like the germ of the idea over the years and people are slowly beginning to fall into place or being put into their place until when you get to the um, Thomas Stowell story, there are others. And eventually, obviously, after I'm probably jumping ahead here, they start getting the Freemasons put in and yeah. knows what else. It's, it's, like, it's like, yeah, you've got to start adding things to it and people will and, certainly and, and adding to people specifically. It. Mm, adding more people, yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, and so you end up as, as it gets people. more elaborate, you That's get right, like yeah. Robert Anderson involved as well, which is crazy. Oh. Churchill, Randolph Churchill. Lord Randolph, that's my personal favourite, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That might come up later, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so, so the, sort of the, the, the seeds were sown, and then it was just a case of like putting the right people, or the possibly right people, in the right roles to fit the conspiracy sort of thing. I think it, I, I think you're absolutely right, John. I think it's uh, a sort of unconscious Chinese whispers. Yeah, I've heard that. I've heard this story. wasn't Wasn't a doctor involved? Yes, I've heard this story. Wasn't Prince Eddie involved? So, oh, yeah, and it may it may also be the fact. That, oh, there's a doctor involved. Let's see who we can find possibly who fits the bill. And yeah. so, do you end up with Gull, or do you end up with so and so, or yeah. all the rest um, of it? It's it's it, it's sort of germinating it's generating as time goes along isn't it until yeah. you get to the night one which completely you know which everybody seems to know even people who don't know anything about jack the ripper necessarily know all about the the night story because it was such a big seller he put, he put it all together in one very neat package and within its own constraints he made it make sense 
What, mm. what uh, really makes it interesting for me is you have all these disconjoined pieces of this puzzle, and then it takes really, I think, a master storyteller to put them all together to make a composite that's, you know, at, at, the, at the time plausible. Of course, now we know we realize it's ridiculous, but, you know, at the time it seems really plausible. Oh, at the time it was absolutely compelling. I don't get that. The, the, the logic of it is so completely ridiculous that I don't see at any time it could have been taken as anything more than a nice story. I mean, when you once you've added all of those pieces together of the entire, uh, which I guess we haven't actually said what the, the full-blown royal conspiracy theory is yet, but um, when you add all of that together, the idea that you know the royals are going to attempt to hide something like an illegitimate child by doing a series of brutal murders that cause not only their own press attention, but the press attention of the entire world to these women, that's not plausible in any century. There's no no plausibility there whatsoever. I think the idea behind that is it's kind of like the idea of wagging the dog. You uh, have something over there that's t- uh, taking place that captures everyone else's attention. Meanwhile, you're covering up whatever it is you're covering up. I think the, I mean, the whole story is, I th- I'd agree with Ali entirely. I mean, it's sort of impervious to logic. It's also subsequently impervious to any external evidence. I mean, all the research that's been done on the movements and whereabouts of Eddie at various times through the court circulars, it really on the sort of um, general consciousness of the story, seems to, you know, from people I talk to, you still got this, oh, it was somebody in the royal family, wasn't it? My, my take on it has always been that I think the sort of defining quality of the story is that it's got all the elements of a fairy story. I mean, if you analyse the characters and the roles, you know, you've got the, you've got the sort of benighted prince who falls for a, a poor serving girl, and they sort of have a daughter who has to be secreted away, and then the equivalent of the wicked uncle or the melodrama villain is after her, and then the mother is sort of has these ghastly things done to her and is secreted away in prisons and institutions. Yeah. To me, it reads just like either a sort of myth or a fairy story. And it also comes complete with the uh, what many would be considered the Mad Queen with Queen Victoria. Who's exactly, yeah. So it's almost an Alice in Wonderland story. Yeah, exactly. It's got To me, it's got so many elements that... If you just write it as a story, it just reads like... I mean, it's even got... Without getting too arty-farty about it, I mean, it's even... You know, if you look at some of the some of the Greek myths about, you know, heirs to the throne who were sort of hidden away and, you know, and then came back and claimed it and all this. And, I mean, you know, there was um, the one who lost his sandal and all that. <coughs> I think it was Perseus. But all these, you know, hidden royal children, which was by implication was what Alice Crook was... You know, she was like the lost princess who had to be secreted away, in like the equivalent of an ivory tower. And, and you've got damsels, damsels in distress and ladies of the night and all these wonderful characters. You know, it's... Uh, but as Ali said, I mean, it has, it has very little, if anything, to do with logic. Let's uh, build, build some more um, of, of the wall here uh, as we uh, approach uh, Stephen Knight's theory and touch upon Thomas Stowell's contribution to the royal conspiracy, which is a pretty big one. In 1960, he first contacted Colin Wilson, uh, the uh, true crime author and novelist, after reading Wilson's uh, story in the Evening Standard titled My Search for Jack the Ripper. And Stowell... Uh, related to Wilson, his theory that the Duke of Clarence Prince Eddie was Jack the Ripper. Um, Wilson shared this story 
with uh, several individuals, including Donald McCormick, Dan Farson, and Nigel Moreland, who is the editor of the Criminologist magazine. And it didn't make it into print until a year later when Colin Wilson's book, The Encyclopedia of Murder, came out in 1961. And in the context, again, of discussing the Robert Lee story that we started off the show with, Mr. Wilson is the first one to suggest in print that the murderer was either the Queen's physician or, quote, a relative of the royal family, unquote. And so it takes 30 years for this story to kind of germinate until we finally, in 1961, see it made public this uh, accusation that the Duke of Clarence is Jack the Ripper. And it's followed up a year later, uh, Philippe Julian's book, Edward VII, which is published in France, in which Julian says, quote, the rumor gained ground that he, the Duke of Clarence, was Jack the Ripper. Others attributed the crimes committed in Whitechapel to, to the Duke of Bedford. So basically what, what I see is, uh, that happened is that Thomas Stowell, told Colin Wilson, Colin Wilson told everybody he knew, which got around to an individual named Sir Harold Nicholson, who is cited in Philippe Julian's French book, Edward VII, as a source for the information. And this is before Dr. Thomas Stowell's article. This is nine years before Stowell himself came out with uh, his theory in print which a lot of people cite as causing so much stress that it led to his death. I think it's kind of interesting he names the, his suspect as Mr. S, which has later connotations with uh, Sickert, and uh, passing uh, this person off whom everyone assumes is Eddie as Mr. S. And if you tie that into Sickert, he could be prosing as Sickert's brother. And, and um, it should be noted that he... Uh, called his suspect S um, in 1970 when he, when he himself uh, printed his article in Criminologist magazine called Jack the Ripper, A Solution. Yep. But prior to that, it was known in, in Colin Wilson's circle of friends, at the very least, ever since 1960, that Stowell's candidate was uh, the Duke of Clarence, the man hiding behind the initial S. Mm. Which uh, I believe Stowell denied in print, did he not? Yes, he did, shortly after. He wrote a letter to the Times. Right. He, maintain, he maintained the basis of the story, but he described him as a, a scion of a noble family. So he was saying he was well-connected, but he denied absolutely that his candidate was Eddie or, ha or had anything to do with the monarchy. Right, and as I had mentioned earlier in the context of the Dutton story, um, Stowell's theory has Jack the Ripper and a royal physician who is attempting to certify Prince Eddie, for mm. the sake of argument, as insane. And it is, again, couched in the context of the R.J. Lee story about psychically tracing um, the uh, Ripper to the home of a prominent London physician. I think the problem with two of these sort of linchpins that you've mentioned is that we come back to this sort of recurring problem with either problematic or, or disappeared evidence. I mean, in the, in the case of Thomas Dutton, you have this unpublished tome called The Chronicles of Crime, which, you know, nobody has seen hide nor hair of. And in the case of um, Stoll, 
he allegedly based his research on papers of William Gull, papers and diaries of William Gull, to which somehow he had access, but which nobody else has ever seen. Um, and then when all this brew, ha, ha, sort of blew up, and after Stowell had uh, written to the Times denying the, um, you know, the furore, and then sadly shortly afterwards died, I think, I think on the, actually on the anniversary of Mary Kelly's death, ironically, um, his son then wrote to the Times Diary saying that uh, the family knew nothing about it, they weren't at all interested in Jack the Ripper, and that all his father's papers relating to it had been destroyed. So, you know, we have nothing to go back and look at, so we have absolutely no uh, basis to know what papers uh, Stowell had, how he came by them, whether they were authentically Gull's papers, as he claimed, and diaries, or whether they were original letters and correspondence from Gull that was destroyed, in which case, obviously, it was a great shame. I, I don't know, uh, Chris, or, or, or anybody, what the truth uh, in the story that um, Stowell had actually studied under uh, Theodore Dyke Ackland, who was uh, William Gull's son-in-law. Mm. Uh, so, you know, there is a tenuous connection there with, uh, with Gull, at least, uh, through, through Stowell and his uh, friendship and uh, tutelage under uh, uh, Gull's son-in-law. So there might be some, there may be some sort of scabby rumour going around the the Dyke Ackland family, um, I suppose um, that, that might have lay at the origin of this, but I guess we'll never know. No, I don't think we will, because again, you know, it's gone for good. I mean, if if these papers ever existed, on which Stoll uh, based his claims, you know, the the son, I can't remember his name, but I, I read the letter in the uh, well, the quote in the Times diary section, uh, and he specifically said, you know, that my he was basically saying, look, we don't want to be troubled, we don't want to know any more, because, I mean, this furor, you know, this is, went round the world in 1970. In fact, I remember it hitting the headlines, I remember seeing it in the papers, and it was reported internationally, not just nationally, and I think, I think both Stoll and his family were probably absolutely flabbergasted by it, because I th if I remember rightly, I think Stoll didn't publish his original article in a sort of mainstream press outlet. I think, didn't he publish it in The Criminologist? Yes. Or was it The Lancet? It was The Criminologist. That's right. Volume 5, number 18 of November 1970. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, he didn't go He didn't go to, it wasn't like the Ripper Diary, he didn't go to the Times or the Telegraph or any of the big national, national papers with it. It was done in a specialist magazine and then whoever picked it up and then, you know, the, the floodgates opened. And as I had mentioned earlier, supposedly Colin Wilson told uh, the editor of Criminologist magazine, Nigel Moreland, the story uh, ten years prior to it uh, showing up in print in his in his magazine. Now, 1970 also sees the entrance of Walter Sickert. Donald McCormick had written his book, The Identity of Jack the Ripper. Prior to 1970, uh, and it had come out in a couple of revised editions since its first publication, and it came out in another revised edition in 1970, in which McCormick first is the first author to mention the possibility that Walter Sickert was a suspect in the Whitechapel murders. The reason that McCormick gave for Walter Sickert's uh, suspect candidacy in the Whitechapel murders is echoed uh, in Patricia Cornwell's, as well as uh, Gene Overton Fuller, in that Walter Sickert uh, painted 
pictures of the crime scenes. So Sickert was first mentioned by McCormick in 1970 as a separate from any kind of royal or Masonic conspiracy. On Sickert- yeah, that, well, they sort of yeah, that was mentioned in that um, McCormick book, possibly just for the fact that he painted. Well, there was a famous paint. There's the painting, isn't there? Jack the Ripper's bedroom, for example, which is a bit of a giveaway, I suppose, in terms of saying whether the artist is interested at least in the murders. But um, obviously, later on, people started finding other things in his paintings and all the rest of it. Um, and I believe, I can't remember who it was that said it, someone that knew him or whoever it was said he, he had Jack the Ripper moments or whatever it was where he, I don't know was whether that was a turn of phrase, but there would be times where he would be sort of, I suppose, infatuated by the, the sort of the idea of Jack the Ripper before he moved on to be infatuated with something else or whatever it was. So, yeah, I suppose he was brought in in that case. But it was very um, it was very fatuous. It was just like he painted pictures. And one of them had the Jack the Ripper name in it somewhere. Easy, a possible. And then he's off again until obviously later on. I'm just going to pick up on the, on the Camden Town murders, you know, the... the, mm. the the series of paintings that, that Sickard did there. I mean, obviously, these were grim, earthy, if you like, kitchen sink drama type subjects that might have appealed to a man of his sensibilities. I, I don't think they bet- necessarily betray a, a, you know, a morbid interest on his part. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> now, because uh, of um, Thomas Stowell's uh, article in The Criminologist, and, and as Chris mentioned, it made headlines worldwide. We get a book in 1972 called Clarence by Michael Harrison, in which the author Harrison is the first to establish an alibi for Prince Eddie during the the Whitechapel murders. This uh, predates what we'll get into later, the Barlow and Watt uh, television series and, and Joseph Gorman and Stephen Knight. And here we have Michael Harrison's book preceding all of these things that already establishes Prince Eddie's alibi. Although Harrison probably takes the unwise step of going on and accusing J.K. Stevens of being the Ripper in his book. Um, But nevertheless, in 1972, we already have the whereabouts of the Duke of Clarence um, ascertained. So therefore, it's it's probably not unusual to assume, therefore, afterwards, suddenly this sort of idea that possibly the Duke of Clarence is Jack the Ripper stops. And then suddenly it's somebody else's Jack the Ripper, but Eddie's in, Eddie, as they say, is involved. Mm. Suddenly it's not Eddie as the Ripper. Even in the Barlow and Watt thing, it's it's all to do with you know the the sort of the conspiracy that I suppose we know today. But they do not suggest that he is the Ripper. Whereas before that, there was all these little sort of hints and innuendos that it might be him. But as soon as uh, this the Clarence book comes out with alibis basically it stops and suddenly it's almost as if people are finding something else now oh what should we find now you know well it's, it's, that, it's that mistaken idea that uh, okay yes he's been alibied out but uh, oh you know maybe there's a little bit of an element of truth in there somewhere you know and, and, and that something else connected to eddie is involved you know rather than just accepting that the whole thing is nonsense and pursuing a more sensible avenue um it's, al- it's almost as though it's too good to drop i mean it's yeah, I think exactly. I, th- I, th- I think it's ironic in the in the Harrison book that one of the dates it quotes actually as a, an alibi for Eddie ends up as being one of the personally I think sort of ludicrous um, 
points that he uses to accuse Stephen in the the the, um, the date of the Kelly murder, which was also the uh, birthday of Eddie's father, and so thereby he was actually at Sandringham delivering a speech in at a dinner in honour of his father's birthday. Um, and but it's also some obscure classical feast. I I, I haven't read the book for ages, but I remember that. Um, that Stephen is accused partly on the basis that all of the um, dates of the, mur- of the murders uh, allegedly coincide with uh, sort of obscure feast days. And I remember one of them was the Feast of Terminalia, which was the Feast of Endings, which I presume was probably the Kelly one. I don't know. But wasn't, um, wasn't the motive for, for J.K. Stephen something kind of fantastically spurious, like... Um, uh, Eddie had stopped being his gay lover, and so he That's got right. revenge by killing prostitutes. Yeah. And of course, that, that wouldn't have worked, because it's not revenge, you know. It's, well, no. <laughs> you're going to kill some prostitutes. Fill your boots, mate. You know, it doesn't quite work. Perhaps it's even more spurious than, the, than anything Knight came up with. But, yes, it's the kind of... It perpetuates the fallacy that, um, okay, you know, it wasn't Eddie, but he must be involved somehow. But it's like everything else, you know. Um, I think it was Chris... Uh, mention it just now, it's a case of, you know, it's almost too good to let go of. Yeah. It's a bit like a religion in that aspect, you know, or or, or a myth or a fairy tale, as, as you've already heard. It's, uh, you want to go on believing, so you keep changing the parameters in order to, you know, keep your belief alive. And it, it seems to be happening uh, at an alarming rate with this story. Joseph Gorman Sickert is first introduced uh, a year after Michael Harrison's book Clarence. In the uh, BBC television miniseries Barlow and Watt, he appears at the end episode. And um, what what kind of took place there is that the producers somehow um, the 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 producers you know in in researching this um, this television series Barlow and Watt investigates Jack the Ripper. They were poking around in Scotland Yard, and a Scotland Yard detective, who I don't think has ever been named, um, suggested to the producers that they interview Joseph Gorman Sickert, who, um, and in interviewing him, we get all of the essential elements of the popular world conspiracy revealed. We have the secret marriage between Prince Eddie and Alice Elizabeth Crook. Walter Sickert, the artist, is portrayed by Joseph Gorman as uh, Prince Eddie's mentor, and Eddie meets Crook and impregnates her, and the Queen finds out about this and orders Lord Salisbury to take care of the matter. Salisbury enlists the physician, Sir William Gole, who uh, raids uh, the uh, a house on Cleveland Street, spirits Eddie away, and performs an operation on Crook that makes her uh, basically an imbecile and ends up putting her in the asylum. Now, the uh, Jack the Ripper part of this story is introduced when it when Joseph Gorman claims that Mary Kelly was the the child of Eddie and Annie's nanny, and um, Mary Kelly the nanny ends up putting the illegitimate child with nuns and then flees into the East End where she becomes um, low-rent prostitute and chronic alcoholic, etc., etc. And so Goal and the coachman, Netley, with, in this version of the story, the original uh, secret version of the story, um, Sir Robert Anderson is uh, acting out 
as a lookout. And Sir Robert Anderson is also involved in the cover-up. So uh, we have uh, Gull and Netley with Sir Robert Anderson carrying out the Jack the Ripper murders. And, and, and this match and, had um, you know, the, the strongest eyesight in the world, because I think he was in Switzerland for most of the murders. But. You had you had Sickert involved as well, because uh, Knight says in his book that the only reason that um, Joseph Sickert didn't mention his alleged father's involvement when the television series was done was because of family loyalty, but that Knight, Knight felt he was able to reveal it in the course of, quote, revealing the truth. Right. Uh, but initially, before uh, Stephen Knight enters the picture, what Gorman's story doesn't implicate Walter Sickert in being directly involved in the murders, no, nor does, the, uh, does Gorman mention the Freemasons in his story to Barlow. Although the Barlow and Watt television show, uh, for all of you who have seen it, is heavily uh, leaning towards the Freemason angle. Nevertheless, I don't believe that it, that the Freemasons played a role in Joseph Gorman's um, part of the story. Um, neither is the motive for the murder given as blackmail, as it's later told by Stephen Knight. All that um, Gorman Sickert claims is that the murders occurred out of fear that Mary Kelly might talk, not that she was involved in some blackmail scheme with three of the other uh, eventual victims of Jack the Ripper. It's not until Stephen Knight um, interviews Joseph Gorman, I believe within a month after the Barlow and Watt television show aired, that we get the um, major elements of the Royal Masonic Conspiracy. It's worth pointing out that I think, if memory serves me right, that Stephen Knight was actually a researcher on that Barlow and Watt program. I know he was a journalist, and he, he, he worked for one of the local London newspapers, but I, I think he was actually working on that Barlow and Watt program as a, as a researcher. So that's probably where he picked up a lot of these nuggets, and certainly where mm. uh, you know, his, his attention was first drawn to uh, Joseph Sickert. I think it might be worth pointing out for folks who are not sort of intimately connected, and I know a lot of people in, involved in the subject avoid the royal, royal conspiracy subject like the plague, but I, I think it, uh, it's worth pointing out to folks that the sort of uh, major players, as you might call them, were actually real people. I mean, you know, Alice Crook and uh, Annie Crook uh, and John Netley did exist, but obviously what's in dispute is their role, but they certainly were real people. Let's talk a little bit about Stephen Knight's book. Um, as um, Gareth mentioned, or uh, Gareth or Chris, one of you, you mentioned that uh, the book that became the final solution initially started off as as a newspaper article that Knight was going to write um, about uh, the claims of Joseph Gorman Sicker. But Knight uh, apparently believed that the story was too good for just a simple newspaper article and turned it into the book uh, Jack the Ripper, The Final Solution, from which we get uh, the uh, Final Solution documentary, the popular 70s uh, TV series In Search Of, um, named um, Prince Eddie as, as Jack the Ripper. Uh, there was a uh, movie, Murder by Decree, uh, in which Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper that w was drawn directly out of this book. The 1988 uh, Michael Caine miniseries, and then the uh, graphic novel and later movie From Hell. So 
all of the uh, Jack the Ripper, the final solution book is the um, is 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 the uh, genesis uh, of the, the the popular royal conspiracy theory as we know it today. Now, Chris, you were talking about Annie Elizabeth Crook and mm-hmm. and um, and Alice Margaret Crook. Can you tell us a little bit about who they were? Alice Margaret was the daughter. She was born, and this is another thing that always sort of rings alarm bells with me, that there, there wasn't just a very short time lag, as might be expected, between the, the birth of the daughter and the alleged blackmail plot and all that, because Alice Margaret was actually born in 1885, so she was, she was over three years old when the murders took place. Annie Elizabeth Crook uh, was in and out of institutions. I mean, she, she obviously came from a... If anything, a, a, a poorer and more humble and more wretched background than, than Stephen Knight's painter, because you know she's painted as this shop girl and this, that, and the other. But the information we can find about her, and which is few and far between, you know, the, apart from the um, bias stuff which comes from Joseph Gorman, um, uh, there is a photograph in existence of of Annie, which uh, came from the Gorman family, and there's also a photograph from the same source of John Netley. Uh, but any any putative relationship between Netley and Gorman, I, to my knowledge, hasn't been established. But um, the story basically was that, uh, that uh, Annie Crook was uh, uh, from a very humble background, and she, as you said, you know, she formed this liaison with the prince, and they had a, a daughter. Now there is people obviously have traced the birth certificate of Alice uh, Alice Margaret Crook, who was born in 1885. And under the um, far entry for the father, it's just left blank. So obviously that um, implies that she was illegitimate. Um, and certainly at that stage, um, Annie wasn't married. Um, then the story becomes more gruesome because the, according to the royal conspiracy story, some kind of uh, cerebral procedure was carried out um, either by Gull or other medics under his control um, to impair... And his faculties, so that basically either she couldn't say anything or, you know, nobody would believe her if she did. And then the story was that she spent the rest of her life in and out of institutions. Well, she did. She was in and out of the workhouse, certainly. And she, in fact, she died in, in an institution. Uh, but, but, you know, a long time later, certainly it wasn't, uh, you know, the drastic brain operation which, you know, made her into a vegetable. There's, no, there's certainly no evidence for that. Um, she was afflicted by deafness, which she passed on to uh, her daughter, hereditary deafness, and also apparently Joseph uh, Gorman was uh, afflicted by it because Alice Margaret was um, Joseph Gorman's mother. Uh, she, she, she married William Gorman, hence the family name. So that's the family connection with Joseph Gorman. Alice Margaret was his mother, although he claimed, of course, that uh, that he was fathered not by... Uh, William Gorman, but by uh, Walter Sickert. Mm-hmm. He claimed he claimed that Alice Margaret ended up as, as Sickert's, <laughs> but they, and that uh, he, he actually says in one account that um, Walter Sickert took her to France uh, and looked after her, and they became involved, and uh, Joseph was the result. Um, so you know, yes, they did exist, and they and we can trace a certain amount about their lives. As far as I know, there's no existing photograph of Alice. But as I said, there's a, a rather blurry photograph of, um, of Annie. Um, and then there, there's um, a photograph, allegedly, of the, the coachman, John Netley. But as I said, you know, what the family involvement there, if any, isn't really made clear. Although some people claim that John Netley was uh, Joseph Gorman's grandfather. But I don't think that's been proven. 
In Stephen Knight's book, uh, there is a picture of who he claims is Alice Margaret. And, really? Uh, puts, and he puts it uh, beside uh, Princess Alex, uh, Eddie's mother, and says, mm. is there a family resemblance? Ah, yes. Yes, yes, you're right. There's a photograph of Princess Alexandra. And he also points out that Alexandra suffered from um, hereditary deafness as well. Mm-hmm. Now, Simon, um, in 1987, you wrote an article for Bloodhound magazine in which you basically tore apart uh, Stephen Knight's the, this particular section of Stephen Knight's book that deals with Annie Elizabeth Crook right. uh, and and um, and the Cleveland Street in particular, uh, not well, not only the the birth and and everything and and its uh, and its um, relative. Um, closeness in time to, to Annie Elizabeth Crook's legitimate marriage, but also the address that she supposedly uh, lived and or worked in Cleveland Street and Wal- Walter Sickert's uh, supposed studio that, that, according to Knight, was located across the street. Could you uh, go into a little bit of that for us, please? Sure. Um, uh, Chris has uh, summed up um, Annie Elizabeth Crook's life pretty well. Um, we can trace her from her grandmother in, was it a mother? Sorry, this writing's so small on my screen, in 1838 through to Annie's death in, in 1920. And uh, we, we, we've got a, a, a pile of information on her, n- none of which really fits in with um, S- Stephen Knight's um, story. What Stephen Knight does is he draws a connection between Annie Elizabeth Crook and a woman called Elizabeth Cook, C-O-O-K, who was living at 6 Cleveland Street. And he fudge it, he really fudges the dates here. 6 Cleveland Street was, was pulled down uh, between 1866 and 1888. And um, the, the, the apartment block of flats that Elizabeth Cook lived in yeah, went up in um, after 1888, and she was still there in about 1893. So the two women are not the same. Um, also, Stephen Knight tells us that Walter Sickert had a studio at number 15 uh, Cleveland Street, and um, Salisbury raided this, and um, Eddie was taken away and um, taught a stern lesson. Um, but the year before this, uh, number 15 had been pulled down. In fact, numbers 4 to 14 had been pulled down. Uh, sorry, 4 to 16 had pulled down. And um, in, it, in, in the place of these houses uh, was built the Middlesex Hospital's Trained Nurses Institute. So basically, um, the, this whole raid thing could not have happened. A couple of important points here. When... Alice Margaret Crook was born in 1885, and as Chris says, uh, it was three years before Ripper events. Her religion and that of Annie, her mother, was entered in the Workhouse Creed Register, and they're both Church of England. Neither of them were Catholic. So that knocks the whole idea of the secret Catholic wedding ceremony ahead. Catholicism only comes in Uh, to the Crook-Gorman family in 1918 when Alice Margaret marries William Gorman according to the rites and ceremonies of the Roman Catholics. So this suggests to us that it was William Gorman 
who was a Catholic. Hmm. So hmm. add that into the equation. <laughs> what, was Sickert, was Sickert uh, Walter Sickert, was he Catholic? I, I don't know. I don't believe so. I don't believe he was Catholic. No. I've not heard of any form of religion that he followed. I've, uh, no. I don't think there's any documentation on that. Also, I'm, I'm just reading down through my notes here. In, where are we? Just, just as confirmation, in March, March the 23rd, 1920, Annie Elizabeth Crook uh, died in the lunacy ward of the Fulham Road Workhouse, although she wasn't certified as a lunatic at the time. Uh, the guy from the GLC says that she might have been if she'd lived a bit longer, but at the time she died, she wasn't a certified lunatic. Um, and in her notes, it says, bodily condition fair, left hemiplegia, occupation packer, religious creed, Church of England. Mm. So there you go. She hadn't uh, changed religion in 20, 35 years. You had mentioned the supposed raid that, that took place on Cleveland Street. It's also been suggested that uh, Eddie was uh, somehow involved in the Cleveland Street scandal, at which um, authors throughout the years have mistakenly described as a raid on, on the building in Cleveland Street that precipitated the Cleveland Street scandal, which, and someone can correct me if I'm wrong, there was no police raid uh, involved in the Cleveland Street scandal. But in, in Stephen Knight's book, like Simon had said, we have a, a sort of a raid occurring in the basement flat to uh, to get Prince Albert Victor out of the way and and to get Annie Crook kidnapped and subsequently lobotomized or what have you by William Gull. Do you think that there's some sort of um, twisting of the two events here, the Cleveland Street scandal and, and the belief that there may have been a raid taking part uh, taking place at that location and this uh, supposed raid that Simon just said that could have never possibly happened at the address that Mike claimed it, it did? I, I think Cleveland Street only plays a part in this because of Eddie's connection with Cleveland Street the following year, supposed connection with uh, Cleveland Street the following year. It shows that he had been there before and and, know, and knew the area and therefore knew how to find the brothel, which I don't buy into anyway. I think there's, there, there's slight evidence that there was some connection. I mean, there was, as far as I know, the only basis for that is this this alleged um reference to him by his initials pav um and also hints that um when uh, what was his name charles hammond fled to america um uh, and there were all these veiled threats of sort of letters and blackmail and he he said in more than one press report that he could expose the highest in the land um and there are also at least two american press reports that do specifically name Eddie as being implicated in the by name in the Cleveland Street scandal. It's a bit like the abdication crisis here in 1936. You know, everybody in the world knew about it by the, by the British because there was <laughs> sort of gentle, gentleman's agreement between the palace and the newspaper editors that it wouldn't be reported in this country. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's strange that the only references I've found to Victor by name in connection with the Cleveland Street scandal is in the American press. The but only then again, 
there again, it, it maybe it's no less mystifying from the fact that Tumblety isn't mentioned, to my knowledge, ever in the British press as a as a Whitechapel suspect. Not at all. No. Mm. The only other connection that I can think of is the fact that one of the investigators in, in the Cleveland Street scandal was Aberlein. Inspector Aberlein was one of the uh, investigators yeah. in the Cleveland, Scr- yeah. mm-hmm. Cleveland Street scandal. Because wasn't there some quote attributed to Aberlein? Uh, I think it was an article by uh, Nigel Morland where he was supposed to have said something like, uh, I think these crimes were committed by someone from the highest in the land um, or the upper branches in society. Uh, I think I've heard that anyone too. Anyone have yeah. any more details? Yeah, mm-hmm. I think yeah. it was Nigel Morland. I'm not sure of the details. I believe it was, it was an alleged meeting um, in in the 1920s uh, between Morland and Aberline, and I'm not sure of the the story's problem. I believe the actual quote uh, under the uh, guise of anonymity that. Aberlin gave, he said, of course we knew who he was, meaning Jack the Ripper. He was one of the highest in the land. And this has yeah. been uh, used to uh, implicate both Eddie and Gull. Certainly wasn't Chapman. <laughs> <laughs> yes, if he was, if he was the, the highest in the land, I'm uh, Mickey Mouse, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, in Stephen Knight's book, he also... As as I had mentioned earlier, really goes hog wild on the Freemason um, aspect of the royal conspiracy, and in particular, the connections that uh, Sir Robert Anderson and Charles Warren had to Freemasonry, and also uh, Salisbury. Correct. Um, over time, it, it's been um, revealed that Anderson and Warren weren't as heavily involved in Freemasonry as Stephen Knight would have liked us to believe. I'll, I'll, I'll take that one up, if I may. Sure. Um, uh, Charles Warren of the Quachua Coronati Lodge, um, <clears throat> which uh, was a research lodge founded in London, and I believe it was founded in 1885, but they held off the founding because um, Warren was abroad at the time and they were waiting for him to come back. Anyway, he was installed as the Worshipful Master. The interesting thing is that he never attended a meeting after his installation in, I think it was 1880, early in 1887. And right through 87 and right through 88, he he doesn't attend a meeting until... Um, quite late on where he is um, sort of rewarded for his services and presented with a pile of books and they wave goodbye to him and, and someone else becomes worshipful master. So he, he certainly wasn't heavily into Freemasonry during 1888 and especially not during the uh, Autumn of Terror. Uh, yeah, I, I think the... Um you know the the implication or the assumption that that Warren was somehow um, uh, you know deeply into uh, Freemasonic law um, isn't borne out. I read somewhere that uh, although the Quattro Coronati Lodge was, as Simon has pointed out, a research lodge, uh, actually Warren wasn't really that up on the subject anyway at that point. Uh, no, he, he he wasn't. He was. Um, uh, he was more the Indiana Jones of your day, and um, was an archaeologist. 
that that was that was his forte. He was responsible for finding what we now call Warren's shaft in Jerusalem, underneath the uh, Temple Mount. That's right. Yes. Well, he led. He led. He led the Palestine expedition, didn't he? Yeah. Well, I say led. He was certainly in it. Perhaps that's the origin of the gay brothel um, uh, rumor. You know, the uh, what, what was it? Warren's shaft and. It's amazing how these things get distorted over time. <laughs> can, I, can, I, can I just make a quick comment? I, I think even if it were proven, which, you know, and obviously folks have done a lot of research on this, but personally, um, the involvement of people of uh, Anderson and Warren's level in society being involved with the Freemasons. I can't say particularly surprises me because I think, it, you know, the, the involvement of, apart from certain uh, families who, who were Catholic, um, you know, the, the involvement of, of Freemasonry in the upper echelons of society and the professions and the royal family was, as far as I can understand, you know, was pretty widespread. Uh, you know, it was, um, and to some extent still is. I mean, there, there, there are still questions raised you know, in this country now and then about the involvement of senior police officials and judges and, you know, should they declare it? And I, I know the Freemasons are much more open now, but, you know, it's, this question still arises from time to time about whether there is a conflict of interest. Um, and, I mean, there's, there's quite an intimate um, history between, certainly between the royal family. I mean, the, as far as I know, he still is. The, you know, the Grand Master, certainly up until recently, was the Duke of Kent. Right. Of, of, of all England. And certainly I believe all senior members, the older senior members, male members of the royal family are, such as Prince Philip and Prince Charles, are Masons. Now, whether the younger princes have joined or will join, I don't know. But, you know, so there is, there is a close tie. And there, there are, certainly there are photographs of Edward VII and Eddie wearing Masonic aprons, which I remember seeing. So, you know, there, there is this close tie. So I, I think also oh, I was just going to say, Chris, that, that uh, I think it was the future Edward the Seventh uh, who would have installed Warren uh, as the master of the Quattro Coronati Lodge. Yeah, I believe I read that somewhere. Yeah. So, Sorry, yeah. Say, say that again, yeah. uh, Gareth. Sorry, Simon. Sorry, say that again, please. I, I, I believe it would have been the future Edward the Seventh, or certainly some high-ranking uh, royal personage, who would have installed uh, Warren or approved Warren's appointment as, as the head of the Quattro Coronati Lodge. I've got, I've got the minutes of that meeting. I'll check them out and I'll send them to you. Good man, thank you. Yeah, no problem. John, I, Jonathan, can I, can I also I, quick? I'm sorry to monopolise oh. it, but can I quickly add, which I think is a more serious objection, is from what I and I, I must admit I haven't read the night book for a long, long time, but the basis on which he alleges uh, Masonic connections, I think, are are the more shaky. Apart from the fact that senior officials were involved, the as far as I remember, there were aspects like his interpretation of the Galston Street, Street graffito, as pe- uh, specifically the word Jewies which he says was a Masonic term, and I know that's much debated and much disputed. Uh, he says it refers to three particular individuals who uh, murdered Hiram Abif, and, and it's all to do with Solomon's Temple and Masonic law. And then there's the business of the, the to my mind, the even more far-fetched business of the, of the two rings uh, which were laid out to echo the two pillars, the two bronze pillars that led into Solomon's Temple. So, and I think... You know, 
it's all very, very stretched. And I mean, well, the and two the choice of um, the uh, Mitre Square murder location, um, oh, the, the Pentacle Star, or whatever they called it, yeah. And also the fact that the uh, mitre and the square are yeah. two symbols of masonry. Yeah. And so are the inverted V's under her eyes. Indeed. Right. Now, um, to your print, yeah. Right. Sorry? Which completes the, uh, the, the trend of it, I guess. Exactly, yes. I rest my case. Um, now, uh, Knight um, conveniently uses this Masonic conspiracy theory uh, as a way to excuse the lack of evidence. Everything is covered up or destroyed because uh, it's a conspiracy. There is no evidence to back up any of his claims because it's a conspiracy and it's all been covered up. So, so um, he has this easy out, you know, in choosing a royal Masonic conspiracy as the plot for his book. But as we've seen, there are so many holes that can be punched in it just by uh, doing the research. So, I always yeah. got the feeling that the uh, Masonic aspect came more from uh, Stephen Knight than it did from Joe mm. Gorman because later on, Stephen Knight writes a book called The Brotherhood, which is an expose on the Masons. Yeah. And, and also in the um, Barlow and Watts thing, I think, um, wasn't it in the um, interview with... Joseph Gorman. He didn't mention the Masons or anything at all. Right. Not at all. Uh, it, yeah. it was uh, it was Watt that brought in the Masons. Mm. Yeah. But also, this uh, this idea of you know, the, the Masonic thing about who in I don't know if you've covered this because I, I keep butting out um, internet problems. But if you mention this, the idea that um, certain individuals in the plot were, were Masons, and hence that's why they covered certain things up and. I need to be made sort of clear, I guess, as what people have done to actually find out who actually was and who wasn't a Mason. I'm sure I've heard that Sir William Gull was not a Mason. Don't know whether I'm wrong in that. I've also well, I've done, I've done a bit of digging into this, and uh, I can establish Wynne Baxter, the coroner, as a Mason, Dr. Frederick Brown as a Mason, and I have no substantiation for the following... Uh, but I have been told that Abilene, Reed, and Swanson were in the same lodge as certain city policemen. Hmm. Now, that's as, that's as much as I know. I know um, Dr. Thomas Openshaw was a Mason because they had his Masonic robes on display at the Docklands exhibition. But, uh, oh, right, okay. Yeah. This is interesting because um, you, you mentioned Brown there. I mean, Brown was one of the few, and um, Dr. Uh, Frederick Gordon Brown uh, was, was the only one of the, the Mitre Square um, medics who alluded to any kind of medical expertise or anatomical skill, to use his attributed words, uh, to Catherine Eddowes' murderer. Uh, murderer. Yeah, he'd have thought uh, if if he was a mason involved in this, and he knew that there was something nefarious going on involving doctors and masons, that he'd have tried to steer the the evidence the other way. Uh, so so much for the conspiracy, uh, or, or you know, if there was one, then uh, the fellow or the brother masons weren't particularly well informed. I believe yeah. it's been proven that uh, uh, Prime Minister Salisbury was not a mason, although he was the one that Stephen Knight 
points as being the instigator of the conspiracy, but the one who gave the instructions to Gull and such. Correct. But he, yeah, he was. He's been, yeah, he's been proven not to be a Mason. And that punches he was, a huge he, hole. He was just a slum landlord. And that punches a huge hole in that theory. Uh, does anyone have any uh, final comments on Stephen Knight's um, book before we uh, move along? Because I do want to um, talk about the emergence of Walter Sickert as out, out of the uh, uh, royal conspiracy theory. If, you, if you're, Are you going on to Sickert next? I was going to, but if you want to... Um, um, well, there, there's, there's one other volume that folks may have seen, which is The Ripper and the Royals, which is I think is another sort of offshoot because that's that's an extent that came after the Stephen Knight book the Melvin Fairclough book and that came right. after and continues uh, into even more sort of outrageous reaches the uh, the sickard story it's a bit, because again that was that was based on extensive interviews with Joseph Gorman um, and uh, I know certain certainly parts of it have been disclaimed by Melvin Fairclough, but I mean the to me the most dubious thing there is is the so called Abilene diary, because this diary emerged. And this is where Randolph Churchill comes in, who was mentioned earlier, because um he's one of the alleged co conspirators as listed in Abilene's purported diary. Right. And I want to mention real quick before we go into this book in more detail that after the publication of Stephen Knight's book, The Final Solution, Joseph Gorman came out publicly and um, basically said he made the whole thing up. And then Stephen Knight, in turn, um, went public in response by saying, well, of course, Joseph Gorman Sickert will say he made the whole thing up because I just accused his dad of being a part of uh, J- the Jack the Ripper conspiracy. Mm-hmm. Um, and and um, so it is interesting that, that Gorman would come out and say that, that it was all a hoax, but then, can I, can I, but then in 1991 uh, reemerge in, in Milton yeah. Fairclaw's book with the uh, supposed Aberlein Diaries. Yeah. Can I just qualify that for, you know, for people listening? Because the... Funnily enough, that let the the article about that letter from Joseph Goldman was uh, was uh, posted on the th- uh, message boards only the other day. Uh, right. He 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 specifically said that he made up the part about any connection with the Ripper, but he actually stood by the rest of his. He still maintained that uh, Walter Sickert was his father, and also that he was descended from Eddie. Yes, and, and um. So you know who who do you believe? I mean, <laughs> yeah, I, I really think that with this theory, what uh, Joseph Gorman was doing was the same thing that Pierre Plantar was doing with the Priory of Sion hoax, mm. and that is to basically declare himself the uncrowned king of his country. Yes, yeah, which that's it. That's the implication, is that, in fact, although legally he wouldn't have been, he's the sort of, again, he's the, the hidden prince, he's the undeclared sort of heir to the throne, even though, you know, I mean, even, even if this spurious marriage had been contracted between um, Eddie and, um, and the crook woman, I mean, it would have been totally illegal anyway. But so, I mean, he, he wouldn't have he had any have- claim. Because he didn't have permission, Eddie didn't have permission from. That's right, and under the royal, under the under the Royal Marriages Act, he had to have permission from the ruling monarch to. Yeah, that's right. Now, um, before uh, Mer- Melvin Fairclaw's book, The Ripper and the Royals, came out, Gene Overton Fuller uh, wrote a book, uh, Sicker and the Ripper Crimes, I believe it was called, um, in 1990, which would be the year pre- before Melvin Fairclaw's book came out, in which uh, she again 
um, Patricia Cornwell would echo this later in her book, uh, Case Closed. She kind of takes the, uh, she takes Sickert out of the royal conspiracy theory and focuses on Sickert's role in the Ripper crimes as an, as an individual based on, um, Sickert's artwork. She, in this book, she, she, uh, kind of repeats elements of the royal conspiracy theory and saying that Mary Kelly was a nanny and an artist's model to Walter Sickert, which is what Stephen Knight alleged in, in, um, in his book. So that, that's kind of interesting that you, that there, there are these little stutter steps in, in trying to extricate Walter Sickert from this conspiracy theory in order to make him the full-fledged Ripper suspect that he would become in Patricia Cornwell's book. But nevertheless, Mel- Melvin Fairclaw, a year later, did come out with the Ripper and the Royals, where he rehashes the entire Masonic conspiracy theory again, throwing into the plot George William Topping Hutchinson's son, Reg, and Lord Randolph Churchill. And, and he mentions uh, J.K. Stephen and a host of other British royalty and uh, sirs and all sorts of people. Hmm. I think Just the only person leaves out is Mohandas Gandhi. Yeah, exactly. What was that? Think Gareth? of a number and double it. I, I, I the, the only person he leaves out is Mohandas Gandhi, who was a, was actually in the East End at the time. And and like we had said, uh, Joseph Gorman Sickert uh, claimed to have be in the possession of the Aberdeen Diaries. Why aren't they in Aberdeen's handwriting? And uh, he, got, he gets his initials mixed up as well. Yes, he does. Down as FG. They in exactly the same handwriting as every other document uh, reproduced in the book. The other thing I spotted in his book, um, he reproduces a compliment slip from the prosecution office in the book. Have you seen this? Yeah. And the the telephone number on it is wrong. Uh, The telephone number that's on the compliment slip is the cabinet office. And I just wondered if anybody would like, like to comment on that. Yeah, I suppose it's a bit like that envelope from the Sussex Regiment that was found near uh, near Annie Chapman. <laughs> oh, oh, there's a story there, Gareth. Indeed, yeah. yeah. Just happened to be lying around, we'll use this. <laughs> there, was, there, was, there, there was also the claim in the Melvin Fairclough book, which um, was that the, the conspiracy extended to actually covering up the... Um, the continued existence of Eddie because it says in the Melvin Fairclough book that Eddie didn't actually die in 1892 and have a great state funeral and that really over-the-top uh, monument. Uh, but he actually lived on. And there's a, a, allegedly a photograph of Eddie in Melvin Fairclough's book sitting at an easel painting that's, you know, years after he supposedly died. Oh, isn't he meant to be the Glam's Horror or something? Yeah. Oh, yes, the, the, Glam's, mon- yeah, the Glam's Monster. That's it, yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, wonderful story. Hanging sheets out the windows and... <laughs> the secret kept by the Queen Mother and all that sort of yes. stuff. Indeed. Counting, mm. and counting the rooms. There was... <laughs> I don't know if, Can somebody remind... Very briefly, talking about sort of strange documents, one of these books, and I can't remember if it's the Stephen Knight one or Melvin Fairclough, it's got a photograph of a very old piece of almost medieval... Sort of a scrap of parchment with writing on that was allegedly found in Mary Kelly's room. That would have been Melvin. This is in Melvin's book. Oh, I thought it was. Yes. Is it the Melvin? I don't know if you've covered this already. The Melvin Fairclough book also apparently had a photograph of George Hutchinson. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. And as as, as, alleged son Reg implicated 
uh, Randolph yes. Churchill. Right. So even even now, I realise that my father saw Lord Randolph Churchill. Yes, you know, you, sort of, <laughs> you, you, you just sort of wonder about how how Faircloth and uh, and Sickert uh, went about um, researching this. I mean, how they went about interviewing, um, um, you know, potential contributors towards this royal conspiracy. I mean, did they did they just kind of blitz phone call everyone and said, uh, "Sorry, we're we're phone calling everyone called Hutchinson." I mean, uh, you. <laughs> Do you have an ancestral connection to this bloke? And, and uh, you know, Reg could have responded with, uh, uh, oh, gee, yes, let me think. Yes, oh, yes, that's a good idea. I'll, uh, I'll, 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 have, a, I'll have a puff of that. Um, it seems yeah. about right, around about this point where the, the royal conspiracy, even though it was 15 years old or more, or 20 years old by that point, reached saturation point where everybody was involved somewhere, somehow. I should say that uh, at this point, uh, after, after saying some sort of um, sort of mean things here, but but the photograph of uh, of George Hutchinson uh, uh, strikes me as about the only possible bit of truth in that in that story. Uh, but we won't go into that here. Yeah. <laughs> uh, only to say that I, uh, I, I'd respectfully beg to differ there, Gareth. But uh, yes, destroying it. <laughs> Drawing a drawing a discreet veil over that. swiftly on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I think one of the, the key sort of um, uh, aspects of the conspiracy theory is actually the collusion between the the prostitutes, um, which I find you know um, difficult to defend, given that um, Annie Crook seems to have spent most of her time. Uh, in the West End, or at least so West Central and, 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 and Northwest, so you're talking about St Pancras, <coughs> the Cleveland Street area. Um, whereas, um, as we know, the uh, the Whitechapel murders nat- naturally happened down in the in the eastern part of the city and and in the uh, the area now known as uh, Tower Hamlets. Mm. Um, Unless there's a very tenuous, well, unless you make the very tenuous connection that we see in, in 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 the royal conspiracy, which is that Mary Kelly was the nanny in Cleveland Street, there's no physical way of tying these women together. And he- that's the what um, Stephen Knight calls in the book: um, "All roads lead to Dorset Street," isn't it? And that's, Indeed. Um, yeah. But even if even if you look there, um, John, you know, uh, Dorset Street itself, it's got a nearly a thousand residents, oh, yeah. over 20,000 yeah. people crammed into Spitalfields alone. Um, but uh, Elizabeth <laughs> Stride lived at 32 Flourandine Street, which is yeah. at one end of the road, and Catherine Eddowes lived at 55, which is at the other end of the road. But in between, I've managed to work out that once again, there's probably about a thousand yeah. people living in that area because there were so many lodging houses in Flower and Dean Street for a start. They probably would have passed each other quite regularly, but whether they knew each other... And the other idea I've recently thought of is that um, if they knew each other, then surely sort of some of the witnesses, especially you've got someone like Joseph Barnett, if Mary Kelly knew all the other victims, surely Joseph Barnett would have said, oh, yeah, I know, I had to read to her about the, you know, the, the, the Whitechapel murders. She used to like me to read about them, would there be some sort of thing that says, you know, oh, her friend Elizabeth was murdered by him, and this other lady she knew, she was murdered by him as well, and all that sort of thing. There's no sort of link with any of the other witnesses that knew the victims quite well, that they knew anybody, you know, any of the other victims. 
You're absolutely right, John. If they were five women who shared a common dangerous secret and one by one they were being bumped off, you would think at least numbers three, four and five would get out of dodge. Well, there's that as well. Yeah, exactly. There's, that's, there's yeah. that one as well. Oh, shit. Now, and just to clarify, Stephen Knight's theory excludes Catherine Eddowes from the right. blackmailing scheme. Um, it, uh, and Catherine Eddowes was murdered in Mitre Square by mistake, uh, according to the, the book The Final Solution. The, um, because she gave so John's point oh. about um, Catherine Eddowes living at one end of the street and Elizabeth Stride living at the other, other end of the street um, – in Stephen Knight's theory, Catherine Eddowes wasn't a part. It would have been Kelly, Stride, Chapman, and Nichols who were who conspired to blackmail. Catherine Eddowes gave the uh, name of Mary Kelly, Mary Ann Kelly, I believe, right, whenever, yeah. when she was arrested. And according to the, the Knight theory, a Freemasonic policeman uh, passed along the information that you can find Mary Kelly here. Right. Yeah, if you move real fast, she's just left the police station. <laughs> I'd, also like to, I'd also like to point out that the map that uh, Stephen Knight uses in that chapter, All Roads Lead to Dorset Street, was just horribly written. It was completely made up, and he's got, you know, Catherine Eddowes down here. Uh, he's you, should got, see the one, you should see the one they use for the documentary. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't I mean, look it's just, anything like it at all. It's it's a totally made up map, completely. Yeah. Mm. yeah I mean, if you want to sort of say, you know, you want to link. If they've given that, this, this is just that for most of the East End would have survived the Blitz intact. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you if you want to sort of go for conspiracy theories about the, the victims knowing each other or having a link, I mean, you might as well just go for the fact that um, Emma Smith, Martha Tabram, and. Elizabeth Stride all lived in lodging houses owned by the same man, for example. Mm-hmm. Mm. You know, it's, it's that sort of tenuous yeah. link. Yeah. You know, they were all you know, that sort of stuff. And other victims lived in lodging houses also owned by similar people, you know, because of the network of lodging house keepers in those days. But it doesn't really hold water because it's, there's so many people in them. Yeah. If I may go back for a brief moment to the Melvin Faircloth book. Um, there was a, a snippet in the, I believe it's the Monster of Glamis chapter, where he talks about how uh, Eddie is almost murdered by being thrown off of a cliff by Netley and another man. And I, that part always kind of intrigued me. I'd never believed <laughs> part of it. And the fact that he survived that, and uh, so they got to spirit him away where no one will ever look. And so they put him in Glamis Castle, which is one of the uh, hottest tourist attractions, I'm sure, then. And I'm. <laughs> I must I must say in the two sort of uh, fictionalized accounts that's you know, from hell and the Michael Caine one it was it was actually the character of Netley in both cases who was sort of quite intriguing but if I must admit if I were a conspirator I wouldn't particularly place my trust in somebody who actually ended up getting run over by his own coach <laughs> <laughs> well if you remember in the Alan Moore book uh Gull was always uh, telling Netley basically how dumb he was in such a way that Netley wouldn't be able to understand that he was, you know, not giving him a compliment. Mm. Now, you had mentioned the Final Solution documentary that does appear on as a Easter egg, a hidden feature on the uh, From Hell movie uh, that was based off of that Alan Moore book that William just mentioned. So, um, unfortunately, 
I mean, it kind of breathes a second life into the royal conspiracy theory, the release of that film. But there there were scattered attempts to pull Walter Sickert out of this thing. With uh, Gene Overton Fuller's book and, and Melvin Fairclaw's book, Sandwiched in Between, a book uh, that came out in 1994 by Paul West, which was a novel in which... He has Walter Sickert as Jack the Ripper. It was called The Women of Whitechapel and Jack the Ripper. It's a fictionalized account. He does Um, stick to uh, Gull being the Ripper, uh, and he does, I think, uh, pretty much the same thing that Gene Overton Fuller does, and uh, that is to make Walter Sickert kind of a um, victim of circumstance. You know, yeah, he's involved, but it's, you know, either due to circumstance or, you know, because other people are controlling him. But it does stick with Gull being the actual Ripper. Paul West's book, you're saying? Yes. See, I have not read it. I've read it, and it just drags on and on. <laughs> Anyone else read the book? No. Um, Paul West does in this fictionalized account, of what, as if Stephen Knight's book is in a fictionalized account, but nevertheless, for the sake of argument. He comes right out and says it's a novel, but he has uh, Mary Kelly, uh, again, as a part-time model an artist's model for Walter Sickert, which is this, um, it's just a reoccurring theme of Mary Kelly. You know, I, I just can't understand why they have to place Mary Kelly in Walter Sickert's studio. Well, I'm just uh, trying to put Mary Kelly in there because I think as far as certainly from Stephen Knight onwards, Mary Kelly's the linchpin of the, of the theory. And it's once again, you, from the beginning, you get, um, it's a physician, it's one of the royal family, and then the people start being put in their places, and then Mary Kelly comes in, then the Freemasons come in, and then what sort of happens afterwards is, I guess, is people sort of sticking to certain things that they can cling on to if they're coming up with these theories, and disposing of certain others, until eventually you get um, Patricia Cornwell, and it's just sicker on his own. Right. Suddenly, all the others have gone. Uh, most of them have all been disproved as being linked with it or whatever, whether you know it's stuff that people have written about where certain people were at certain times or when they were born or whatever it is, and suddenly you've just got Sickert left on his own as part of this sort of conspiracy. And I think it's people trying, attempting to slot certain people in, but also hanging on to things that were, were mooted earlier on. It's that sort of uh, what happens often in Ripperology. Yeah, there are all sorts of theories that point to Mary Kelly being the cause of it. She gave Dr. Stanley's son syphilis. She uh, brought uh, some – there was a female uh, suspect. I can't remember her name. It's Russian who uh, – Mary Kelly brought her sister into prostitution. I mean there's just – I mean there's so many different theories that uh, just basically hang on – Mary Kelly, and so you know that's something that everybody can hang on to. I, th- I, th- I think mainly for two reasons. One, she's the last in the series. If you take the canonical five, and al- and also the fact that so little is known about her, she's a blank canvas. You can you can't prove or disprove anything about Kelly, so you can you can cast her in whatever role you want. Mm-hmm. She's also conveniently about the only victim who wasn't already falling apart before the Ripper got to her. Yeah, um, she still had. Um, you know, her youth and uh, relative good looks about her. So if you're going to place anyone into a kind of an artist model stereotype or into a, you know, a, a nanny of, um, of of the crook infant sort of role, um, then, then she'd be the one. 
And then, as as there's a very active uh, thread on the message boards at the moment, there was there was a comment that that uh, Kelly was no mean artist herself. You know, there were implications that she had some kind of artistic talent. So you know, there's perhaps some obscure link there. Now, as was mentioned, um, Patricia Cornwell in her book Portrait of a Killer Case Closed, which which came out in 2002. She dismisses the royal conspiracy without really naming too many names. She has, she has a bad habit of not crediting the researchers that came before her in her book, in my opinion. But she she does it's kind of surprisingly, in my opinion. I mean, you would think that with with all of the the, the things that she uh, theorizes about in her book, that she wouldn't so quickly dismiss the royal conspiracy theory. Um, but does, um, claiming that uh, William Gull and Prince Eddie had absolutely nothing to do with the murders, and she does single out Sickert acting alone. And that, up to date, is the most recent mutation of, of the royal conspiracy theory, is that Walter Sickert's been pulled out of the, the whole shebang and accused of acting alone. Kind of the opposite of Jane Overton Fuller's book. Right. So what's the case against Walter Sickert? I mean... It flies in the face of what Joseph Gorman Sickert says, and, and, you know, Patricia Cornwell's book. But yet, it, it was a hugely successful book, and, and outside of the royal conspiracy, Walter Sickert's uh, Ripper uh, candidacy is the most famous. But what's our ultimate judgment on, on Walter Sickert's involvement in these crimes? Doesn't um, Patricia Cornwell's book, I've not read it for a long while, but does <coughs> Patricia Cornwell's book sort of single him out as a a lone operator, pretty much in the same way that it was mentioned in Donald McCormick's book in 1970. I'm not sure if there's any sort of... Is there any co- co- collision with others in that, or is he just the lone? He is, isn't he? He's the lone... Yeah, he's he's the lone. Yeah. She, she, um, yeah. so suddenly he goes back to that simple thing of him of him being... Obviously, they the paintings are mentioned... In abundance, right? She destroyed one by accident, apparently. Um, but yeah, so she uses just just his life and the way he was brought up, and etc. 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 to make her case. Yeah, and I think Stephen Knight's theory gets brushed just aside in in mm. one paragraph. And it all seems to hinge on her personal belief that he was psychopathic and uh, and and a misogynist. Uh, and uh, the evidence for either of those traits is uh, pretty much non-existent. There's a lot of, there's a lot of, I detect a lot of kind of bile, a sort, of, sort, of, sort of anger towards sort of, uh, you know, this mm. perception of Sickert as, as this kind of kind of psychopath, and, uh, and, and that seems lacking in evidence. Mm. Yeah, there's that whole thing about him having a hole in his willy. Well, most of us men have. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's what it's used for. That's yeah. what it's used for. It's my fistula, and I'm proud of it. <laughs> Glad to have one. <laughs> yeah, but there was a debate there again, wasn't there, about whether it was a, a fistula there or a fistula somewhere else. Um, the, I think, wasn't it the hospital that it was apparently operated on only dealt with anal fistulas, which are altogether less scary? So what, what, is it, what does everyone think? Do, do we think that we've seen the end of, of the Royal Masonic Conspiracy? I mean, can it get any worse? Um, I know. I, I know. Professor Cornwell has think, a new edition of her book coming out. Hopefully, it it won't you know reconsider I, I, her initial judgments on the royal conspiracy. But go ahead, Chris. 
I think the most, actually, to me, probably the most interesting question about the Royal Const- I, I think it's been comprehensively demolished in terms of, of evidence and credibility. I think the much more interesting question is, is why it's taken such a hold in the public consciousness. Mm. Um, I mean, most people I, I talk to who are outside, you know, my well, ripper circles, it sounds dreadful, but you know what I mean? I mean, obviously I've got a lot of friends who sort of glaze over when I mention the subject and I'm <laughs> remotely interested and say, oh, for God's sake, shut up. And, um, which does me a lot of good sometimes. Um, and, um, but there's, uh, there's this abiding line, oh, wasn't it something to do with the royal family? And most of them are absolutely amazed when you tell them how comparatively recent as a theory it is, you know, they think it's been around since the year dot, that it, it, was, it must be contemporary or near contemporary. They say, no, 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 it came along decades later. Uh, and, you know, there was, there, was no, there was no intimation at the time or even, you know, decades after that, 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 that there was any royal connection, let alone, you know, Prince Albert Victor. And it always intrigues me. And just as a very final passing little note which you know folks may be interested in apparently a, a number of writers and researchers over the years have approached the palace buckingham palace to try and get an official comment from the present royal establishment you know their thoughts or their reaction to the royal conspiracy theories when it's always met like so many things with a wall of silence but uh, some years back uh, the the then i can't remember his name sir michael somebody the then royal press secretary let it be known off the record that the senior members of the royal family, including the Queen Mother at the time, considered the idea completely preposterous, and they said, you know, it, it's, complete, it's complete nonsense. Well, I don't think the popularity is all that surprising. As with anything, the sexier theory is going to be the one that the public latches onto, and it's yes. much more exciting to consider, you know, this sort of grand governmental... Uh, cover up and and plot like with um, you know just as recently as the World Trade Center it's not as exciting to think that a bunch of you know religious kooks drove planes into buildings no it has to be somehow they the the government had secreted bombs into the building yeah. to detonate you know it's just conspiracy theories have always been popular yeah. among a certain mindset who can't just believe you know bad things can happen it has exactly. to be more Created yeah. by people above us trying to control our lives. So mm. I'm not surprised that it's the most popular theory. It's always easier to go with emotion and sensationalism than it is to just accept the logic that it was a complete unknown, nutting nobody. Mm. And the the year it emerged in in Stephen Knight's book, anyway. Um, was you know has been has been noted in other places before. This isn't anything new. It you know it happened uh, uh, concurrently with the Watergate scandal in the United States. The you know the JFK assassination conspiracy theory was at its height with um, Mark Lane's books and Jim Garrison's books, and so it kind of hit a chord at the time. I think in the early seventies. It's, it's, it's going to sound like a really weird comparison, but the thing that the Royal Conspiracy, you know, and its hallmark of, you know, all these deep conspiracies and signs and writing on the wall, the thing it reminded me most of when I saw it was that film of Nicolas Cage in called National Treasure. 
because there was there was all this business about the the Masonic symbols on American banknotes, and you know this uh, this unknown family had been keeping this secret for generations, and this hidden treasure and all that. And to me, I th- it, it's got so many of the s- similar characteristics. Oh, obviously that's fiction, but and and as somebody mentioned, you know the Priory of Science story, the Pierre Plantar. Right. Well, if you really think about it, all the conspiracy things are pretty much fiction, including the Royal Masonic theories. So. Yes, true. <laughs> It's not that far off from the Royal Masonic theory. True. But it's, it's amazing how much mileage they have. I mean, if you go way back to, um, well, what year was it, the Roswell incident? Was it 47? That's still discussed at, at huge length on websites and in books now. You know, and it's uh, crop circles or Bigfoot. You know, I mean, it's to me, it's exactly. in that sort of... The, the Bigfoot and the aliens, that, that's all true. <laughs> I was going to mention something there. When you sort of started talking about conspiracy theories in general, I thought something I thought of the other day was that possibly the first conspiracy theorist of the, even though it's on a basic level, of the whole case was that man that Mrs. Pormier met on Widegate Street um, after the Mary Kelly murder, and he said to her, "Do you know? Have you heard about the murder in Miller's Court?" And she said, "Yes." And he said, "Well, I know more than you do." And had this sort of, you know, it was that sort of, I know something you don't. I have esoteric knowledge that, uh, you know, and off he goes sort of thing. But, um, yeah, the whole sort of conspiracy, there's conspiracies have been around for, for ages. It's Whether it's the princes in the tower or, you know, Kennedy, man on the moon, Area 41, Kennedy, you know, all, all that sort of stuff. All the, it's, it's a thing that sort of gets people going, and that's probably why it's so... Uh, so popular because people like to be part of this sort of Jack the Ripper is a mystery but then if you have a mystery within a mystery it just gets people sort of gets people going I had um, a lady because I I get this question the question you mentioned all the time that Chris was talking about um, where people say oh hasn't it got something to do with the royal family or whatever it is I get that all the time on tours in fact I had one last night and she said um has it got something to do with the fact he was a Prince of Wales? Yeah. And I said, um, oh, you're talking about what they call now called the Royal Conspiracy Theory that sort of came out properly in the 70s, and it's been pretty much dis- disproved. Do we think it's, it's uh, uh, and I kind of tried to ask this question earlier, but do we think it, that, that, that this is here to say that no matter how much research uh, Ripperologists put into disproving all of these um, aspects of the Royal Conspiracy Theory, is it all for naught? I think what we've seen, John, is that you know the, the initial sort of uh, rich broth has gradually thinned out, and um, you know as various bits of evidence crop up, the, um, chip away at, at at the fringes of the theory, you're left with less and less and less of it. So that now uh, all we're left with really is is, is sicker, um, and that eventually, I suppose, there will be some diehards out there who. Um, Sort of, uh, will still hold on to that sort of aspect of the th- of, of of the conspiracy theory, but there's precious little of it left. And I suspect that in twenty years' time, all we'll have is some sort of Cheshire Cat remnant of it, like you know, uh, Walter Sickett's grin, maybe. Um, and there'll still be people going around saying that Walter Sickett's grin was the Whitechapel murderer. I hope it's his grin and not his fistula left. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think, I mean, among diehard ripperologists, yes, it's an absolutely discredited and discounted theory, um, as well as most people who know anything about physics or et cetera, disprove the, the uh, 
World Trade Center, but facts have no bearing in the lives of conspiracy nuts. It's mm-hmm. just, it, you can't reason with people who have a need to believe in something some grand design going on. And so for the vast majority of people, um, the the royal conspiracy theory is the best story. And so it's going to be the one that continues to crop up in the movies, in the um, sort of fictional accounts. And that's how most people come to the Ripper case and know about the Ripper case. So in the general population and the general mindset, the royal conspiracy theory is always going to be the primary theory, in my opinion, among hardcore Ripperologists who know the facts and study it, of course, it's the most ludicrous. Well, well see, I, I don't know that I agree, Allie. I think that Patricia Cornwell, if we don't include her book uh, on Walter Sicker in the Royal Conspiracy Theory, I think that, that Patricia Cornwell has, has a good shot at becoming more popular than Stephen Knight's. Um, we have, you know, generations dying off. Um, more people nowadays have probably read Patricia Cornwell's book that that are still living that that read Stephen Knight's book back in the seventies. Um, you don't have you more. You have more people who saw the Johnny Depp movie from Hell that's than true. read Patricia Cornwell's book. So it's not going to be the 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 seventies book, the night book that keeps the theory going, it's going to be the Johnny Depp movie, and then the next movie, and then so on and so forth. That's where it's going to be in the popular literature. Right. And and the films will always uh, take the angle of it being some kind of governmental conspiracy, of course. Just a quick note. One we haven't mentioned, because we've mentioned, I, I mentioned the Michael Caine one, and we've, you know, there been lots of mentions of the Johnny Depp one, but, but another one which was firmly based on it, of course, is Murder by Decree. Right. The uh, the Sherlock Holmes. Um, My favourite. I I, th- I like it. I mean, I, it, it's nonsense factually, but I, I oh, like yeah. it. I loved it. Christopher Plummer, that one. That's it. And That's James it. and James, James Mason. Mason. Yeah, yeah. Watson. I thought it was terrific. I wonder but, was uh, it, how, how how did that compare time wise with that thing he did when he went into the backyard at Hanbury Street? Was later, I think. Is it would have been about six or seven years later with a guest dress. Yeah. What the what the Sherlock Holmes one? Yeah, yeah. So he'd done some interesting research for when he came to it. Yeah. The only thing I'd like to say about the the, the royal conspiracy is it's the one theory that people who know nothing about the subject can hang on to. Absolutely, Simon. I've uh, I've noticed that. I mean, I mean, the man on the street is going to say something like, "Oh, it's that prince bloke, isn't it?" I mean, that's the one I get most often. Exactly. All that they have to say is royalty, privilege, conspiracy. Because they can the... under- they can understand it, but it, if you if you make some uh, you know really good argument for Walter Sickert, first of all, they won't know who the hell he is. So it's yeah. it's it's a nice easy opt out. Exactly, and and they won't know enough about the case to be able to sort of contradict. Uh, You know, some of the more nonsensical claims. Mm. No. Although the great thing about conspiracies is that, uh, you know, if if certain members of the royal family wanted to get together with certain members of the government and certain members of the the, uh, security services and pull something off, and they pulled it off, right, who'd believe that they'd done it? (laughs) (laughs) So they can work. So I don't think we can d- dismiss conspiracies out of hand completely. Are you kind of making the point that it's no longer a conspiracy theory if we've heard about it? So the only, only the successful conspiracy theories are the ones that we, we are unaware of, right? 
Yeah, yes, most likely. I mean, you know, a, 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 lot, a lot of people think that, I don't know, say, Jack the Ripper was a conspiracy. I think there was a certain element of conspiracy in the, in the Jack the Ripper thing, but nothing to do with, um, nothing to do with royals. Um, a lot of people think that, um, you know, 9-11 um, uh, was a conspiracy. And, uh, and the great thing is that if you do something big enough and outrageous enough, um, people are not going to believe it. It was a conspiracy. Nobody could possibly do that, they'll say. Right. Mm. And you, you just have to be bigger than that sort of fundamental belief in um, human nature, human goodness, whatever. I think that's one of the criticisms of the, of, uh, the particular Stephen Knight royal conspiracy theory. I mean, the, the logic goes that, um, you know, a combination of government officials and royals, if they wanted to hush something up, they could easily dispose of prostitutes in a very surreptitious way rather than, you know, mutilating them and, uh, and, and, and it inevitably making the headlines. I, yeah, I think we have to... Um, I, I mean, I don't know if you agree with me that there's a, that there's a certain element of um, conspiracy in there somewhere. I, I want to know why it was done in such a high-profile, look-at-me fashion. As, as, as you say, Ben, you just drop them off a boat in the Thames with mm. something tied to their leg, mm. if you want to get rid of them. Yeah. I, I think there was something symbolic, and I, I, I use the term loosely, about, about the murders. I think we were being shown something. God knows uh, to, what it was there. The way, the, way the, the way the conspiracy theory runs, the most puzzling aspect to me is if they got this, um, albeit rather uh, messy and public way of disposing of women they didn't want, why, why did they go through all this paraphernalia of, of um, letting Annie Crook survive? You know, there was some sort of brain operation, but then she was she was then re- she was then released and drifted in and out of um, of uh, institutions. I mean, wh- why not just bump her off? Exactly. Uh, Indeed, you know, or, or, or why wait until nineteen oh three to to bump Netley off? Because uh, well, exactly. He he was complicitous in it, and uh, he was of the same social class, I dare say, as the victims. Yeah. Um, that would have made him a legitimate target for, to be silenced. I would have thought. Yeah. So the whole thing was, you know, just reeks to high heaven, really. I'd love to know actually how Netley got dragged into it because I mean, un- unless he was actually a a, a a close or distant relation of of, of Joe Gorman's, I ju- I'm just intrigued as to because as far as I know, there's been no um, sort of family connection established between Joe Gorman and Netley. I just wonder how on earth he got dragged into it. I think it was simply because. Um Unless I'm mistaken, there was a, a a newspaper article reporting his death. There was, yeah. Uh, and he died at Clarence Gate. In a Clarence accident at Clarence yeah, Gate. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's the only reason he's been sucked into the whole thing. I'm going to wrap it up now. I'll uh, give you guys the opportunity to make any, any final thoughts that you may have on, on the royal conspiracy. Have we, have we pretty much uh, covered it to death? I think we've done what I've, I've had a wonderful time today. Thank you very much, guys. All right. Yeah, thank, thank you all. You. All right. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks, everyone, for coming on the show. Okay. okay. Take care. Take care. All. Take care, everybody. All right. Care, everybody. Bye. Okay, then. Bye. And that was Rippercast, episode 43, The Royal Conspiracy A Go Go. I want to thank everyone for being on the show today. Again, that was Simon Wood, William Ellis, Chris Scott, John Bennett. 
Gareth Williams, Ben Holm, and Allie Ryder. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders available at the website www.casebook.org podcasts or in the iTunes Music Store's podcast section under History Keyword Rippercasts. If you have any comments or questions for myself or any of the show's participants, feel free to email us at rippernet at mac.com. I want to thank everybody for listening, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>